familiar is the enemy of the shocking. I'll say that again. The familiar is the enemy of the shocking. So what do I mean by that? Well, the more familiar, familiar, that's the word I'm looking for, the more familiar you are with something, the less shocked you are by it. So take, for example, when we first came to Sioux Center, we were shocked that there was a water park. I mean, that, that was wild to us, that a town of 8,000 would have a water park. It's, it's not a big water park, but it's a water park. It's pretty nice. When I, when I first, my first day here, I went for a run and ran past the water park. And I, I got here a little, uh, a few days earlier than the rest of my family. And I had to stop and, like, take a picture and send it to the kids. Because we had only seen it, like, during the winter. But this was exciting. Like, during the summer, seeing the water park, taking a picture of it. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so amazing! Well, I don't have that reaction now when I go past the water park. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a water park. Okay, great. Yeah, tsunami, thank you. And um, yeah, because it's become familiar to us. The passage that we're going to read today is going to be familiar. We're familiar with it, but it's, it still ought to shock us. And so I invite you this morning to kind of put aside your preconceived understandings of what's going on in this passage and pretend like you're reading it for the very first time. You're a very first-time reader as we walk into the passage where we have the visit of the wise men to Jesus right after his birth. That's where we're going today. Uh, Let me pray, and we'll dive in. Father, I pray that you would give us soft hearts. May we not have dull ears and hard hearts, but open ears and soft hearts. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, today in our passage, in chapter 2, we're, there's basically four parts to it. Matthew kind of structures it around four uh, Old Testament sayings. And really where he's going with these four parts is to show that Jesus is the true king. He's the Messiah. And he's, he's basically using this idea that, that these Old Testament passage are, passages are being fulfilled in Christ. So we're going to look at that for about half of our time. But then for the rest of our time, I really want us to ask the question of what is our response to what we find in here? What is our response to what we find in here? So, starting in chapter 2, I'm going to be reading it in sections, so we're not all going to stand and read today. I'm going to kind of explain as I go, uh, kind of looking at these things that Matthew is doing. But we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1 of Matthew. This is what God says through Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, let's pause there, because already we have something that should be shocking to us. Something incredibly surprising. We have these non-Jews, these Gentiles, who are coming onto the scene and they're saying, Where is the king of the Jews? But not only are they Gentiles, non-Jews, but where are they from? From the East. That's important because usually in Scripture, when it talks about the East, what it's talking about is Babylon. That dreaded, horrible Babylon, the nation that was responsible for the exile of Judah. They're the sworn enemies of the people of God. So we have these wise men from the East, from Babylon, the enemies of the people of God, showing up saying, we want to worship the Messiah. That should be shaking and be like, whoa, hold on a second. What in the world is going on here? Why is this happening? 
Why is this happening? So let's keep going. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we're introduced to Herod, this other king. And Matthew's intentionally using this king language to contrast King Jesus and King Herod. And he's troubled. Well, why is he troubled? Well, Herod was a rather paranoid man, and he didn't like threats to his rule, and he even tried to have it arranged to where on his death, about a hundred leading men of Judah would be killed with him. He was that type of guy. Herod was not a good dude, but he's also an imposter king. He's not a real king. He's not the Davidic king. He wasn't even Jewish. He was an Idumean. Now, an Idumean was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. So this guy is not even part of the promised people of God, but the Roman Empire had propped Herod up as kind of a proxy king that served their interests. So that's Herod kind of being on the scene, being this king of the Jews. And here we, he hears, oh, the real king is here. He's hearing it from these men from the east. So we have a conflict between Herod and this Messiah king, this king who's going to shepherd God's people. Going on in verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod here tells a little fib. You know, we even know, you don't have to have read the story before to know that Herod's not really telling the truth. The original readers knew what type of a guy Herod was. Like Herod does not want to come and worship. That's the proper response to come and worship. Herod should be excited. Oh, this king is here. The king who's going to truly rescue his people. I don't need to be king anymore. But instead, he's kind of being a little sly. Oh, yeah, I want to rescue. Or I want to worship too. That's not going to be the case. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Greek there literally is they joyed a great joy very much. I mean, it's like this redundancy upon a redundancy. The idea is that they were very excited. We just sang joy to the world. I mean, these guys, they were living it out. Joy to the world. They were pumped. Like, yes, we've got it. We have found this king. It's going to be contrasted with Herod's response here in a moment. Verse 11. And going into the house, when they saw the child with Mary his mother, or they they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
Okay, this is stunning. When you take this whole section together, it's absolutely stunning. We have a people who are not part of the covenant people of God, worshiping, paying homage, submitting to this baby boy, this king. They're saying he is our king. They are giving royal gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is weird. We can't overstress how weird this is. You know, there's that sign right south of town that says this is Raider Nation. I think that's what it says, right? It's Raider Nation, Mark? Yeah. Okay. This is Raider Nation. Now, you know, just because you put a sign up and say that doesn't make it true. But, you know, that's, a, that's an advertisement for Northwestern. Now, let's say some of our, our Dort students here, they're driving out of town and they see that sign. They're like, oh, wait, really? Oh, okay. And, and they drive to Orange City. And they go to a basketball game, and they enter it, and they're wearing all their, their Dort gear and stuff. They, they walk into the, the arena. Then the game starts, and all of a sudden, the Dort students are like, yeah. And they, they get rid of their Dort clothes, and instead they put on Raider clothing. And they're, they're like cheering, and they're screaming and hollering for Northwestern. You would look at that and be like, what, what are you doing? What, this is weird. But that's what's happening in this story. You have people who are not supposed to be identifying with the people of God. Identifying with the people of God. Because they saw a sign. It's weird. It's weird. But it shows that God is doing something. Okay, that brings us to this. We have, you see on your, your sheet, we have this first point, the idea that Jesus is the true king. And there's kind of four ideas that Matthew is unpacking as to why Jesus is the true king. And these are all kind of sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. This first one is Jesus is the true king. One, because he was born in Bethlehem. We had this quotation from Micah that we read, this idea that he was born in Bethlehem. And he's honored by the nations. So we have this ruler from Bethlehem. And all the Gentiles are coming and honoring him, worshiping him. All four themes, or all four things that we see that Matthew lists are themes that run throughout the book of Matthew. And that's kind of why I'm, I'm unpacking them a little bit today, because these four themes will show up again and again as we go throughout the book. This idea specifically that Jesus is honored by the nations or is welcoming the nations in. But let's keep going and kind of see this second idea that Matthew is popping up or bringing to our attention. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Here we have God rescuing his people, rescuing this king. There's a threat from Herod, and God's like, Herod, you can try to advance your kingdom all you want. I know what you're doing. And so he gets Jesus out of there. God's kingdom can't be thwarted. Psalm 2 starts with this question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then a little bit later in the psalm, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's like the people of the world, the kings of this world, plot against the Lord and his ways. And what does God do? He laughs. Like, you can't do anything about what I'm doing. So God saves Jesus and his family. 
And Matthew sets this up to say all of this is happening so that this fulfills what's said by the prophet, and he quotes Hosea. Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I call my son. Now, if you go back and look at what Hosea said, you might take issue with what Matthew is doing. Because Hosea is not looking forward, he's looking backwards. He's looking backwards at how God took Egypt, or took Israel out of Egypt, and then how Israel has continually been disobedient. And nobody likes to be taken out of context, so you look at Matthew and say, Matthew, how could you read this in such a way? Well, again, we talked last week about the different ways that Matthew is using this word fulfillment, and it's not always this idea of a prediction has been made or like Nostradamus has said something and now it's coming true. And actually, the four things that we get today, these four Old Testament ideas, only one of them is a prediction, and it's the one we read about Bethlehem. The rest of them are along the lines of, oh, it's a melody. It's like this, this thing that happened before. And so here, Matthew is, is basically saying, not that Hosea was making a prediction, but that what is happening in Jesus' life, that Jesus, he's walking through all of the stuff that Israel went through to show that he is indeed God's true and faithful son. So here's our Our second idea, Jesus is the true king because he is the faithful son of God, the true and better Israel. The true and better Israel. So he's not saying, yeah, this is somehow Micah was saying the Messiah would be like this, but instead he's taking the idea that the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah will be the true Israel, the one who leads Israel, the one who walks in Israel's footsteps. He's showing, yes, Jesus is this one. He is true and faithful. We're actually going to see that a lot more in chapter 4 when Jesus is in the wilderness and is tempted. So we're not going to spend much time there today. So let's keep going. He is the true and better Israel, the faithful son of God. But in verse 16, we get our third thing. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod's reaction is quite extreme. I've always asked the question, what do we sin to get and when, what do we, when do we sin when we don't get it? That kind of reveals our idols. And Herod obviously has an idol of his own kingdom that he wants to protect. He goes to the extreme of murder. This is typical of what we know of him. Now, sometimes you'll hear people teach this, and they're like, this is this huge massacre of thousands of children. And I don't want to underplay the fact that this is tragic. But it was not a massacre of thousands of, of children. Bethlehem was not a large town. This was at most a dozen to two dozen people. Tragic, for sure, young children, but it's not a 2,000-person massacre. So, because sometimes people use that as, oh, there's no extra-biblical evidence of this. Well, it was a small town with a small number of children, and in the ancient world, that would have been tragic. But thinking about how Herod's reign and how many people he killed, that wouldn't even be worthy of a footnote. But it's sad. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Matthew is picking up on this tragedy and doing something with it. Because again, if you look at this quotation, it comes from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. It's not a prediction. Jeremiah here is looking back at when the exile happened. A lot of the exiles were gathered together at Ramah and then 
deported to Babylon. So there's weeping and lamentation. And so here we have Matthew picking up on this and saying it's like this. But it also runs a little bit deeper because Jeremiah 31 is a chapter of hope. There's several chapters of hope that fall in the middle of Jeremiah, and 31 is kind of the big one. And it talks about the time when God's people will return from exile. But this reference is in the middle, and it's reflecting back. And God says there will be a time when this weeping won't happen. He says that elsewhere in 31. And so Matthew is picking up on this and saying, yes, this terrible time when God's people are oppressed, there will be a time of hope. And Matthew is saying that time is now. That time is now. There's this terrible mourning where Bethlehem experiences this murderous rampage of the king. And it was like the deportation. But just how God promised when God's people were deported that there would be a glorious return, that return is happening now with this king, Jesus. That's the point that Jesus is making, or Matthew is making. And so that's our, our third idea. Jesus is the true king because he begins the new age, an age of hope. An age where there's a return from exile. God's people will, be final, will finally be restored. They'll finally be restored. So he's not, Matthew's not just cherry-picking verses out of the Old Testament and saying, oh, I think this kind of fits the narrative I want to say. No, he's crafting a greater story about who Jesus is. And he's providing hope to his audience in the midst of a tragedy like what happened at Bethlehem. Continuing on in verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he took, <clears throat> and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Oh, let me switch for you. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this one's even odder, as we have Jesus uh, and his family returning from Egypt, because this quotation we get here, or this idea, you won't find this in the Old Testament. Matthew says it was spoken by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene, but if you read from Genesis all the way to Malachi, you won't find this. You won't find anything even close. So it's like, Matthew, are you now just making up Scripture? What are you doing here? And there's several ideas that have been floated around out there, and I think there's one in particular that holds a lot of weight and makes the most sense when you consider the rest of what Matthew is doing. You see, Galilee and Nazareth were seen as second-rate places by the Judean world. In Jerusalem, they'd look at Galilee, and they're like, oh, those Galilee people. Galilee was originally part of the northern terri uh, territory of Israel. There was a lot of interbreeding that happened there. There was a lot of idol worship that happened there. They looked at them and they're like, you are the people who aren't pure. We don't like you very much. And so here, when Matthew says that Jesus, the Messiah, would be called a Nazarene, he's basically taking the, 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 the view of his day that, that Nazar Nazareth would have been a second-rate place to say that the, the Messiah 
would be someone who would be rejected or despised or seen as subpar. And you see that throughout the prophets. The prophets continually talk about how the Messiah will be rejected, how he will suffer, how he won't be listened to. And I think that's exactly what Matthew is saying, that he'll be called a Nazarene. We don't have to play fast and loose with the text. This goes very much along with how Matthew works with the Old Testament. So that brings us to our fourth idea. Jesus is the true king because he will be despised and rejected. Jesus is the true king because he will be despised and rejected. And overall, Matthew's just trying to make the point, Jesus is the true king. God's kingdom is here. He's arrived, and we've been seeing that. We saw it throughout chapter 1. And actually, you could even fit what we saw last week in the back half of chapter 1, kind of this other Old Testament citation saying that God with us, Emmanuel, that's kind of the fifth point. That actually fits along with uh, this, these, these four, the kind of the five ideas that Matthew gives. Jesus is the true king. Okay, now, I want to turn our attention to the question of what do we do with this? What do we do with this idea that Jesus is the true king? That there is a kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven, that is actually here. What do we do? What's our response? Because here's the interesting thing. In this passage, Jesus is kind of a background character. He doesn't do any much. He doesn't have any agency. Who are the main characters? Well, you got Joseph, even going back to last week. You have Herod and you have the wise men. Those are the ones who are doing all of the action in the story. In particular, in today's thing, we see that the wise men and the, and the uh, Herod serve as foils to one another. They're contrasted with one another, and it's surprising. And we need to take an honest assessment of our lives in light of these two people. Because Matthew, he's often raising the question of what does it look like to be someone in the kingdom of heaven? That's a theme that goes throughout his book. He is constantly writing about what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven. And this is no different. The wise men are shown to be what it looks like to be someone in the kingdom of heaven, while Herod is not. He is not someone that obviously belongs in the kingdom of heaven or belongs in your nativity set. Which is kind of funny, because he's like a main character in this story, but who wants him hanging out at the stable, you know? And he's got a knife looking around for the babies in it. It's a little morbid, sorry. Not a funny joke. My apologies. But here we go. I want us to ask the difficult question. Not... How can I be like the Magi? But how in my life am I honestly like Herod? That's the hard question. Nobody wants to read this story and be like, yeah, how, how am I murderous like Herod? That's the question that we ought to ask, that we need to ask. So here's our second point. This is how we're, we're like Herod. We often don't recognize God's kingdom, and we often actively fight against it. We don't recognize God's kingdom, and we actively fight against it. Herod did not recognize that God's kingdom had come, and he tried to stop it. And we do this when we say, I want my kingdom to reign. You know, we often pray the Lord's Prayer, you know, God, your will be, your will be done, your kingdom come. Usually it's, I uh, mean, my will be done, and my kingdom come. We want our kingdoms to come. We want the things that we want to happen. We want to be the authority in our life. Kingship is all about authority. And authority ultimately is the right to order things as one sees fit. Is it not? That's what authority is, the right to order something as one sees fit. Jesus has that authority, and we do not. 
Jesus has it, we don't. So let's talk about specific ways that we are like Herod, that you are like Herod, I am like Herod, ways that we fight against the kingdom. And again, this is everyone in this room. There is nobody in this room who is exempt from being like Herod, not a single one. I think one specific way is that we want control over our plans. We think through the plans that we make, when they don't come to fruition, we get pretty upset or we demand that they be fulfilled, whether that's your job, your major if you're a student, or the way your family ought to work out, the way your children ought to be. Another way that we are like Herod is that we don't worship. The wise men were quick to worship and pay homage, and Herod wanted nothing to do with it. And I don't mean singing here on Sunday morning, but instead having or joying a great joy for Christ very much. Do you joy a great joy for Jesus very much? Is every thought taken captive to him and oriented towards him? Do you think about him? Do you honor him? Do you, when you go about your day, do you say, yes, Jesus, this day belongs to you? You are my king? Do we worship him? Or do we just give lip service? Oh, yeah, 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 I want to worship. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Do we worship? Do we joy a great joy very much? Another thing we do is we go to extreme lengths to protect our kingdoms. To protect our kingdoms. Our reputation, our status, our finances, the relationships we have. We try to protect those things because they're our kingdom. We don't want to see them threatened. When those things are threatened, how do you feel? That reveals that, oh, these are the kingdoms that I am trying to own, I'm trying to build. Instead of just saying, God, what is your kingdom? Can your kingdom come? Another thing we do is we only partially surrender. God, you can have my Sunday mornings. You can have my Wednesday nights. But you can't have all of my day. God, you can have this much of my checkbook, but not all of it. You can have this much of my listening time, but not all of it. Do we give all of our attention and affection to him? Or do we see some people, oh, you're just the super weird spiritual people. I don't really want to be like that, so I'm going to kind of straddle the world where I'm going to, on one hand, yes, I'm going to do the Christian thing, but I'm also going to just live my life. And you can't tell me not to, Jesus, because that's weird. But Jesus is like, no, my kingdom brings life. The final thing that we do, well, not the final thing, but last on my list, is we don't listen to what God has clearly said. We don't listen he has the right to speak correction into our life, does he not? He is our God. He can tell us where he wants us to go and what he wants us to do. And he has given us all that we need right here. And we look at it and we say, ah, that's old and weird. I don't want it. He has the right to speak correction. Herod chose to not listen to what the scripture said about where the Messiah would be born. And instead he tried to use it to his advantage to keep his kingdom instead of just surrendering to it and worshiping. Sometimes we'll try to use this to our advantage. Well, what does it say that I can do and what can I get away with? But instead, we yielded to his kingdom. Guys, there's no peace between our kingdom and God's kingdom. I'm, I'm hammering this a lot this morning because there is no peace. It's foolish to try to take our kingdom and somehow marry it to God's kingdom. God does not, does not allow us to do that. He wants complete and total surrender. Unconditional surrender. There is no I get to cling to this, God. He says, will you give it all? 100%. There's no peace. 
You see, our kingdom does not produce life. It ultimately produces death. As we pursue our kingdom, it produces death. Maybe not right now, but ultimately it does. It produces death. But God's kingdom, which requires us to come and die, and says, leave it all behind, it brings life. There's rich beauty and irony there. God says, lay it all down, die, and you will have life. Don't clutch to the things of this world, thinking that they'll bring life. Don't clutch to the relationships that you have or that you want, thinking that they'll somehow somehow satisfy. Instead, cling to Christ and say those things, they won't satisfy. He brings life. And that brings us to the third point for today, that there is hope. God's kingdom is available to those who see and submit to it. They see and submit to it. This is tremendous hope. This idea of looking at the Magi in Herod is not a message where I want to bash you with the truth of surrender. It's to say that there's hope because our lives, our kingdoms bring death, but Christ brings life. And we can have it by seeing his kingdom and surrendering. I know I'm yelling today, but I'm excited because this is beautiful, guys. It's beautiful. His kingdom is better. It's better. So let's look at these wise men, these Magi. A beautiful thing about them is that their background... Their past is completely unimportant. Matthew gives us none of it. Who they worshipped in the past, irrelevant. Astrologers would not have been well respected in the early church. Yet Matthew includes a group of astrologers, that's probably who these guys are, in this story of Christ's birth. How beautiful. Their past worship, irrelevant. Instead, they worship Christ. Their family of origin, how they were raised, what they learned, irrelevant. Education and social skills, irrelevant. Whatever they had done, irrelevant. So whatever you have done, wherever you are from, it cannot keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. It's a matter of surrendering, seeing that his kingdom is here, and saying, yes, yes, I surrender. It's a matter of just admitting that what you have done, or admitting to what you have done, and just confessing it to the Lord. Another beautiful thing about this is that we see that the the new kingdom, the new heaven, or the new kingdom of heaven creates a new family. It's a new family of all tongues, tribes, and nations. But it doesn't negate the culture and ethnicities that we have. It doesn't erase those things. Instead, it brings them in. They are welcomed with their culture and ethnicity. The fact that they are from the east is not shoved to the side. It's an integral part of the story. It's to say, wow, isn't God amazing? He can, be like, he can bring people like that into the kingdom of heaven. So your family of origin, although it's not important to coming into the kingdom, is not erased when you're in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is, praise be to God, not colorblind. But we are welcomed who we are into the kingdom, and then God redeems that and makes us fully who we ought to be. He doesn't just leave us in the mire and in our junk, but he makes us into who he wants us to be. So, our response. Many of us here, we are in the kingdom, but we still find ways to fight against it. So where are you fighting? Just come and tell the king where you're fighting and just lay down your arms. And he's like, I love you. I've got you. You are my son. He already knows about it. He's not surprised. Just confess it. The way of the kingdom is recognition of the true king. Just coming to him, recognizing that he's the king. And he's kind and gracious. Slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love. All these things that we talked about in our patient pursuit series. 
Now, some of you here today are maybe outside the kingdom. You've never laid down your arms and stopped fighting against God. You've been trying to earn his favor, or you've just been rejecting him outright. And both of those are really the same thing. You're saying, God, what you've done for me is not enough. Jesus' death on the cross is not enough to pay for what I've done. I'm going to continue to try to make you happy instead of just surrendering to his grace. And if that is you, I welcome you in. Just lay down your arms. Sometimes we need a, well, all of us ultimately originally need a heart transplant. We're dead in our sins. And we keep trying to put band-aids on our arms thinking that that's going to get rid of the heart problem that we have. We don't need a band-aid. We need a heart transplant. And Christ offers that to you today. He offers you a heart transplant. And you can walk in his ways and love him if you would just surrender to him and Christ's death on the cross acknowledging that he has paid for your sins. All you have to do is surrender. I have one just kind of response statement for you today, and it's this. Jesus, your kingdom come. Jesus, your kingdom come. That's how you surrender. Lord, I want what you want. I confess that you're the Lord and I'm not. So recognize where you're fighting against the kingdom of God. All of us are fighting somewhere. Recognize where it is, and then just simply turn to him and lay it down and surrender. Say, God, I give up. May we be a people who cry out, God, your kingdom come. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you love us. You sent Christ to die for us. We thank you that you gave us a new kingdom to live in, the kingdom of light, not the kingdom of darkness. Father, I pray that we would surrender, that every last person here today would surrender to you. May you pour out your spirit on us. May we recognize Christ as the true king. May we have hearts not like Herod, but like the wise men who seek to come and worship this newborn king. Pray all this in Christ's name.